It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. You're listening to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with, as always, Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. And Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis on location this week. Uh, Jonathan at the Tournament of Stars and beautiful Cary, North Carolina at the USA Baseball Complex. Jim Callis in beautiful Omaha, Nebraska for the College World Series. So this is kind of cool. We'll we'll get a, a take on both those events. One, of course, the high school level, one at the college level, but in both a lot of talent as far as baseball goes, and, and especially when you not only look at this draft as far as the College World Series goes, but certainly going forward and looking into the 2017 draft. We'll also look at some of the uh, signings thus far after the draft, some signings, some players that have signed under slot value, uh, which has freed up their teams to, to kind of make moves with, with other players they've drafted. And then on the other side of things, those other players who have signed for over slot value. So, as we get into it, guys, first of all, welcome. Thanks for joining me from your specific location. Let's start in Omaha. We'll, uh, we'll work ourselves east from there. Uh, Jim, I think you just got there to the College World Series in Omaha, uh, and it's been a wild World Series so far, just like it was in the Super Regionals and leading up to it. It's been upsets everywhere, but the big one, I think everybody considered Florida the big favorite heading into this one, especially with Louisville being knocked out in the Super Regional. But sure enough, Florida, two games, two losses, and they're done already. Yeah, you, they, they call that two and barbecue out here in Omaha, Tim. <laughs> uh, but no, the whole tournament's been kind of shocking. I mean, the two most dominant conferences who, who got more bids than anybody were the SEC and ACC. They only got one team each to Omaha, and neither Florida nor Miami won a game. Uh, Florida, you know, easily the most talented team in terms of draft picks for this year, next year, and the year after. I mean, we were talking to Chris Buckley, the Red Sky director, and you remember my, my three-hour-long question I asked him that had about eight parts, and one of them was whether he'd ever seen a team as talented as these Gators, and he said probably not, and they lost in two games. Uh, you know, also, I mean, not just them. I mean, there's only three of the eight national seeds even made it this far. Many of them lost in the regional round and of those three national seeds florida miami were two the first two teams eliminated and the only team that, that's won a game of those of that group is texas tech which won because it played florida you know somebody had to win that game so it's just been a, a series of upsets and speaking of texas tech you know right now the big 12 only got three bids uh, you know which was a low number for their league all three of those teams went to omaha and right now you have two of them undefeated in TCU and Oklahoma State, who who seemed headed on a collision course for the finals, and you also had you know not it was not a good year for the West. The West didn't even get one regional host site, and yet the West sent you know as many teams here with Arizona and UCSB, uh, UC Santa Barbara as the ACC and SEC did combined. So it's been a very crazy, inexplicable tournament. I, and and the committee's defense, like there are some years where you can kind of pick and say, wow, how big is that team over this team? 
I don't think anybody was really complaining about the teams they took or really had too much how they were seeded. It, it's just been upset city. Now, the one thing Florida did do is pitch, though. I mean, they lose two games, but you can't blame that talented pitching staff, right? I mean, they got no run support in two losses. Yeah, they lost 2-1 to one and 3-2. to two, And I think, I know through six games, I think it was the lowest scoring college world series ever. And, you know, it's funny because when they, when they moved into TD Ameritrade Park, there were years where, you know, you'd have three home runs hit the whole series and the ball wasn't carrying and you have dead or bats and it's a big park and the wind seems to blow from center towards home plate more often than not the way the park's configured the the wind kind of comes down through this, this main road in the city and blows towards home plate inside the stadium the last year you know they, they switched balls in the ncaa and the ball flies a little bit more and it was a more i guess fair setup you know more fair balance between hitting and pitching you could actually go to game and and see a home run and feel like if a team was up by two runs it wasn't an insurmountable lead but this year, it's been, you know, dead ball era. It's, uh, it's like I said, I'm just getting out here. I'll have to investigate why that is. The last year, I thought we'd gotten past that. But, you know, I, Oklahoma State hasn't even given up a run yet. So when you look at the teams that are left, you have Coastal Carolina, Texas Tech. They play tonight. Arizona, Oklahoma State set for Friday. TCU also alive, as you said. I know you would pick Florida to be the team uh, before this started, but you also liked Oklahoma State a lot. So, do they set up at this point as your favorite to come out as the champ? They do because I just think their pitching's hot. I mean, they have Thomas Hatch, who was the Cubs' first pick in the draft, a third rounder. He hasn't given up a run in something like 24 NCAA tournament innings. They turned Tyler Buffett, who was a seventh-round pick, and I know my draft list in front of me. I want to say White Sox, but I might be wrong on that. But Tyler Buffett was a reliever most of the year, and they turned him into a starter. He hasn't given up a run. You know, the key is now for the two undefeated teams – You've got Oklahoma State and TCU. You really want to win, like, in one game and not take two because and it's an interesting strategy thing because with Oklahoma State, they have, they have today off. Tomorrow they'll come back and they'll play Arizona, who they beat one to nothing the other day. Um, and I don't think they're going to pitch Thomas Hatch. So then he would be on even a little bit of extra rest going to the best-of-three championship series. But if you lose Friday, then you probably have to pitch Hatch on Saturday with the season on the line. And then that kind of limits to whether he can even pitch or if he does, how many innings he could pitch in the championship series. Because if he pitched Saturday, you wouldn't bring him back before game three Wednesday, which would be three days rest. And, and you know, for, for fans listening to this, this isn't like the big leagues where guys are pitching every fifth day. In college, you generally pitch once a week. So he would be getting half his normal rest. So for both them and for TCU, when TCU plays tomorrow, although TCU doesn't have a dominant starter a la Hatch, you like to take care of business to keep your rotation and bullpen fully rested going into that final series. One more question for you as far as the College World Series goes, Jim, and that is uh, looking ahead to 2017 and, and players that are going to be draft eligible next spring, um, who were you most excited to see perform in this College World Series, and has anybody really stood out on this big stage as far as next year's draft goes? You know, the, the, the funny thing to that is not – Particularly, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> I don't think there's there's an obvious first round pick for next year out here. As I'm going through the five teams in my head, you know, Florida's out here. I could have named about eight guys. Yeah, and I know Fayetta pitched pretty well for Florida, but but lost that second game. And, you know, and Dalton Guthrie. You know, and they, you know, seven, you know, JJ Schwartz. <laughs> you know, we could have gone on and on and on. Uh, I don't think there's a first round pick still out here for 17. And I'm trying to think. I don't think we've got a first-round pick for this year 
either. I, I think the highest draft pick off the top of my head might be Thomas Hatch, the Cubs' third rounder, who was their first pick. Um, so uh, he's, he's the best. It's just like I said, been a weird, weird way this tournament's unfolded. The favorites, you know, just keep going down. And, and like I said, I mean, three national seeded teams out here, and they've gone one in five, and the only win came when two of them played head to head. And if Texas Tech doesn't win today, that means they'll basically lost every game where they didn't match up against another national seed. So just a strange year, but I mean, always a fun event. And I think this is my 28th College World Series, and uh, looking forward to, to seeing how this one ends up. All right, enjoy the rest of the way. Let's switch gears now to to the high school level and the Tournament of Stars out in Cary, North Carolina. So, Jonathan, thanks for uh, hanging in there. Um, I know this is an event that that Jonathan you're at pretty much every year, and and it's it's a cool event. It's it's obviously high school players, but not with their high school teams. They're kind of all thrown into a group and and broken up uh, into teams. I guess that's where we should start. Is just explain what the Tournament of Stars is all about at the USA Baseball Complex. Sure. It's, um, it's kind of part showcase, part tryout. So it's become a, a must-see stop for scouts because there's 108 high schoolers here. Uh, without having the rosters directly in front of me, I would say 100 of them are guys who are going to be in next year's draft class. we got a handful of underclassmen who are here as well. Uh, and they're all auditioning for USA baseball to try to make the 18 and under team that will compete internationally this year in Mexico in September. Uh, it'll get whittled down by the end of this week to 40 names. And then, uh, the, that trials team will go and play, uh, a little bit later on in the summer. And then they'll whittle down to a 20 man roster. Uh, at the same time as that they're trying out for this team, obviously they're showing what they can do in front of scouts, uh, as part of the showcase, circuit uh perfect game national showcase was last week and comes right into this one and then there's some all-american games coming up and so uh, area code games east coast pro showcase also to follow uh, so there are a lot of opportunities for top high school players to be seen by scouts and and this is one of the the bigger ones because uh, i think having the stakes of trying to make the team uh make it a little bit more of a competitive nature than just a regular showcase where it's all about your individual skills now, is there more than just the games on the field? Are there drills and stuff like that as well, or is it just yeah. straight-up games? So on Tuesday, they have a workout day. Uh, they had a workout day, and they run 60s, and they take batting practice in infield and outfield, and everybody watches and charts that. And then uh, uh, Friday of the weekend there is a workout day as well. Uh, this year they've added a home run derby for Friday evening. Um take that for what it's worth but it's still competing uh you know with some some pressure you can get some sense of some raw power but it's more the workouts that i think people tend to to look at uh, in between all the games and then they do play the games and they're broken up is it completely random as far as the breakdown of and i know the names of the teams are all kind of patriotic and and american as we get close to fourth of july here right it's uh you know fitting for for team usa it's you know, pride and free and, and brave and stars and stripes. And, and I don't know, it's not random, but it's not regional. I, I think they probably, what they try to do is based on the information they're given and how these guys are invited, try to make the teams as competitive as possible uh, so that you can get a, a much more fair assessment of, of their ability. Because if you have a really good player on a team that, you know, that's terrible, it's, 
you know, it's hard to sort of ascertain what he's about. So obviously the games are underway now. Has anybody uh, kind of stood out to you so far in, in game action? Yeah, I mean, the arms have been very, very impressive. Um, Hunter Green, uh, who actually was on the 18 and under national team a year ago as a, uh, an underclassman, he's a two-way guy, but he's going to pitch incredibly athletic. Uh, he was up to 96 uh, in his uh, first outing um, and just very athletic delivery. There's a lot to like. You can see, you know, when he starts focusing on pitching only, I think uh, you're going to see me even more for him and from, from the pitch ability standpoint. But he throws strikes. This isn't a guy who's uh, really, really raw. Um, you know, we had some guys in this year's draft class who would have fit that description, but he actually – has a better feel for pitching uh, than you would think. Uh, one guy I think who probably made a bigger name for himself is D.L. Hall, is a high school lefty. Uh, not like a blow-you-away, light-up-the-radar-gun type, although there's enough fastball there. He's up to 92, 93, uh, but really mixed his pitch as well. He's not as big as Braxton Garrett, uh, so there isn't that projection piece, but the performance reminded me a little bit of Garrett uh, at the Tournament of Stars a year ago, just in terms of he showed three pitches he could throw all for strikes, really knew what he was doing. Um, like I said, not the same size stuff. It's a little bit shy of, of Garrett's, but similar in terms of the results. And obviously you haven't seen everybody in action yet, as not all these teams have played as far as games go. Is there anybody on that you haven't seen that, that you kind of came into this week looking forward to seeing on the field? Yeah, I mean, and, and even guys that I've seen that haven't shown so well. Uh, um, Jordan Nadal is a guy who uh, I had heard about uh, all of his tools, uh, and he struggled at the, at the outset and has not shown as well as I think he, he could have. Um, and I think that I would like to see if he can sort of get himself headed back in, in the right direction. I remember last year Will Benson started off a little slow and then kind of got going late. He ended up making the 18 and under team. Uh, Brady McConnell's a middle infielder. I've only seen a little tiny bit of, and I've liked what I've seen, but I'd like to see a, a, a bit more uh, as a middle infielder, a guy who can definitely stay short. And we know how uh, well thought of those guys who can stay at that spot are. Awesome stuff. So there you go. That's that's what's going on as far as high school players and college players right now in, in mid-June. Uh, good stuff from both Jim and Jonathan. How about let's get back to the 2016 draft because it's still not that far back in, in the rearview mirror and we continue to hear about players signing and we'll continue to hear that until the deadline next month. Um, let's get into that a little bit. Uh, and Jonathan, there's been some very recent signings, right? Manning just today, I think. Yeah, that was, you know, uh, it's not official, but should be uh, very soon as we as we record this. Um, but uh, the Tigers and he have agreed to terms uh, for pick value at number nine overall. Um, this is a guy whose name was being mentioned, you know, in the top ten for quite some time. Ultra athletic, his dad played in the NBA, Rich Manning. He was a basketball standout as well. Uh, and there was some talk leading right up to the draft that, uh, he had thrown out a very large price tag, uh, and that, you know, he may get moved, you know, moved down draft boards as a result. And I think there may, there may have been some attempts either by teams or in the players camp trying to push him down in the draft. But once he got taken in the top 10, I think that kind of ended any of that speculation because, uh, pick value for there is even if it wasn't exactly the number they put out was 
uh, obviously, since he's agreed to terms, you know, just over $3.5 million was enough for him to forego his commitment to Loyola Marymount. And throughout the draft coverage, we talk a lot about the slot value, obviously the pick value, and and teams with a lot of picks obviously having more bonus pool to work around, and now we're kind of seeing that start to come together. Um, and and it, we got to start with the Phillies here, Jim. Obviously, Mickey Moniak, the number one overall pick, the slot value was just over $9 million. He signs for 6.1, so almost $3 million extra dollars there for the Phillies, and that's money that they've already – uh, kind of started to make the most of as they go about signing their other players. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I've gotten a lot of questions on Twitter. You know, how come he got $3 million under pick value? You know, what's going on there? And the number two pick, Nick Senzel, got $6.2 million from the Reds. You know, what's happened with Moniak? And, and it's not like he was taken because he was, you know, going to be under $9 million because every player in this draft was going to be under $9 million. No, no player's ever got more than the $8 million bonus that Garrett Cole got in the last year of the pre-bonus pool system. And, you know, you look at the previous two drafts, the number one overall picks, Brady Aiken agreed to $6.5 million before he failed the physical. James B. Swanson signed for $6.5 million. And they were both regarded as better players than anybody in this draft. They would have been easy number one picks in this draft. And it was a case, you know, why Senzel got a little bit more at two than Moniak got at one. That was just the case. I think Senzel had a little bit more leverage that there was a good chance or a fairly good chance that, that Nick could have gone third to the Braves if he didn't go second to the Reds. Whereas if Moniak didn't go one, you know, and I think he was a good pick and I would have taken him over Senzel. And I think he's a, he's a very good one overall pick, but just the way the teams that guys lined up that Moniak was probably going to go no higher than four to the Rockies. So the Phillies had some leverage. They used it. You know, it, it's, it's not just ability. It, you know, the sign ability plays a factor, although I don't think the, Phillies gave up any talent, but they went out and they gave their second-round pick. You know, Gowdy got Tim Gowdy got three point five million dollars, which Jonathan, I think we had him ranked like right around you know somewhere in the mid thirties on our our draft list, which was about the tenth or eleventh high school pitcher in a great year for high school pitching, and he got almost as much money as Matt Manning. He got more money than Joey Wentz and Forrest Whitley, who were ranked ahead of him. So that was a really good deal for him. Uh, they, they spent $1.1 million on their third-round pick, Cole Stoby, uh, Omaha's own Cole Stoby. I could uh, I guess go track down his uh, house and say hi to the Stobies if I wanted to while I'm in town. And even their 11th rounder, they used uh, $600,000 uh, to sign Josh Stevens, who, who you guys saw at the NHSI tournament in March, very good hitter. Um, and, you know, and they used that as well. And that's just part of the game. The, the, the bonus pool, the, the pick values for the first three or four picks, are, are almost absurdly high compared to what the market value of those picks are. And that's done intentionally to allow teams to do what the Phillies have done and also what the Reds at two and the Braves at three have done with their picks as well. Yeah, and you mentioned and the Reds, and you said Nick Senzel actually got more than Moniak, but uh, Jonathan, he was still $1.5 million under slot, and that's allowed the Reds to have a little more extra room. And they had more money than the Phillies overall just because of the way their picks uh, ended up anyway, and they've gone out, and, and Taylor Trammell has been a beneficiary of that as he signed above slot. Yeah, he did. He got $3.2 million for signing. They had that extra pick, and that's why their their bonus pool was higher than the Phillies after all that. You know, the Phillies just had the number one pick, which sets them apart, and, and their second-round pick, and the, the Reds had a pick shoehorned in between there, and uh, that enabled them to afford Trammell. Uh, even, uh, <clears throat> even with, uh, you know, 
signing Sandel for more than what Moniak got. As you said, the, the savings were, were, were very, very good. And just to bring us all together, not only is Cole Stobie from Omaha, Cole Stobie also participated in the Tournament of Stars here a year ago. So how about that for bringing it all together? That, that's amazing. What's he done in New York where I am? Anything? No. No. Okay. Sorry. Oh, oh well. All right. <laughs> uh, one other interesting guy that hasn't signed yet that, that we figured wouldn't have at this point, uh, as I go back to you, Jim, is, is Jason Groom. Seems like, obviously, he was a guy that had kind of set the bar high. I think they had let it out there that he wanted uh, big money. He slipped, obviously, to the Red Sox at number 12. Um, some off-the-field stuff allowed him to, to slip down to there as well. Is this going to be one of those wire deals where we're right up against the deadline as far as him signing or not signing? Yeah, I think that one may be the one we're waiting on. I, I want to say, uh, and I don't have the list in front of me, but, Jonathan, it sounds like 26 of the 34 first-round picks have signed. Does that sound that, about right? That uh, that sounds uh, right. You mentioned barbecue before, by the way, and uh, I'm, I'm sitting in a barbecue place myself in North Carolina. Different kind of barbecue, but so I don't have anything in front of me either. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope you have some good food. What, you got a, what barbecue joint are you at? Is it? Because I've been Smith, to several. Smithfield, Smithfield's Chicken and Barbecue. I have not Famous been there. Club. But uh, anyway, I hope you're enjoying some barbecue. But getting back to Groom, yeah, there, <laughs> there were a number of factors that, that kind of made his deal uh, his deal interesting. I mean, he he's number one in our rankings in terms of pure talent. There are some off-field issues that concern teams. Um, you know, I don't think he was going, like on draft day, I don't think Jonathan Wright thought he was going any higher than six and then maybe eight to the Padres. And, there's talk, I mean, and I believe it to be true, that the Padres, you know, who were in love with Cal Quantrill and took him at eight, but then picked at 24 and 25, that the Padres planned on giving him $5 million had he gotten back to their, their second first-round pick, which he didn't. And, you know, and I think you're going to have this battle of wills between the Red Sox who have a $3.2 million pick value at 12, and they can move some money around. But they are under no obligation to – to match what some other team may have promised Jason Groom. I, my, my, my sense of things is that the Red Sox are going to try to get their other deals done, calculate what they can spend, obviously not go over 5% and forfeit a first-round pick if they don't sign Groom and lose his money out of their pool. I think the Red Sox may even make a strong run at their 11th rounder, Nick Quintana, who would have gone much higher than that, if, if, if you know, just based on pure ability. And my sense is, is that they may go down to the wire with him and just say, okay, we've got everybody signed. Here's how much money we have left that we can pay you without you losing a first-round pick as a penalty by going more than 5% over our pool and take it or leave it. And we'll see. I mean, I know just from talking to some other teams, uh, most people think that the groom will eventually sign for something and then the, you know, I don't know if it'll be in the $3 million range or the $4 million range, but, you know, with some maturity issues dogging him, you really want to risk, you know, something happening between now and next year's draft. You go to Chipotle Junior College in Florida, you know, which would make him draft eligible again next year. But uh, that'll be an interesting battle of wills. If there's a a first-round pick who isn't going to sign or will be the most difficult to sign right now, I think it's clearly Jason Grimm. Yeah, definitely something we'll keep an eye on between now and that deadline coming out in July. All right, guys, as always, a super podcast here. Uh, Jonathan Mayo doing great work out in, in Cary, North Carolina at the Tournament of Stars, and Jim Callis out in Omaha at the College World Series. This has been the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Tim McMaster along with Jonathan and Jim. Tune in again next week.